Now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you're saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, lest you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, that He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. For years, Baylor University played its basketball games in Heart of Texas Coliseum. It really wasn't designed for basketball. It was actually, or is actually, a kind of a civic center out on the fairgrounds. It's where they had all the livestock shows. I mean, they might have a livestock show one afternoon and a basketball game that night. You can imagine how that smelled. It was a terrible place to play basketball. The roof leaked and the lighting was poor. In fact, it was like playing in a dungeon. One night, I remember, they, they had a total blackout and they sat in absolute darkness for about 30 minutes waiting for somebody to get the lights on. Um, I was watching them play one night, playing SMU, and it blew in a blue norther. And, and, and we like to froze to death because there's just big old huge cracks in the building. It's terrible. The worst place in the Southwest Conference. But with the, build, with the building of the magnificent special event center called Farrell Center on the campus of Baylor University, they prepared to play their last game on March the 5th, 1988 in Heart of Texas Coliseum. It was a media event. Now you can't have a media event without selling t-shirts like this. It says, I helped turn off the lights in the heart of Texas Coliseum, March the 5th, 1988. And they actually, had, they, they actually did that. They, when the game was over, they turned out all the lights and had, everybody had a candle and they celebrated. And they talked to the sports information director and he exulted. He was so caught up in the excitement of it. He sounded like a, a, a man with a new baby. He said, just think of it. No more leaky roofs. No more playing in the darkness. No more freezing to death. No more smell of cattle. On March the 5th, 1988, they gathered at Heart of Texas Coliseum and celebrated the things that are no more. Because this is Easter Sunday all over the world today, we gather in great cathedrals and in little white churches in the wildwood and we celebrate the things that are no more. No more suffering for the Savior. And for six hours He hung on that cross in brutal agony. And now He cries, Father, into Thy hand I commit my spirit. If it were a battle, this would be the aftermath. If it were a journey, this would be the site of home. 
If it were a storm, this would be the sun breaking through the clouds. But it is not. It is a Messiah. And this is His sigh of joy. And across Skull Hill there rang out that sound. Father, the voice that raised the dead, that taught the willing, that screamed at God, now calls Him Father. And the two are one again. And the schism has been bridged. And, the, and in the language of a little Jewish boy saying his goodnight prayer, he said, Father, it's over. Take me home. In the 17th chapter of John, we read his prayer. And the pathos of it moves us all the way down to our toes. Oh, Father, glorify Thou me with the glory I had before the world was. And in that same voice, although now hoarse, hoarse with dehydration, he says, Father, it's over. Satan's vultures have been scattered. Hell's demons have been chained. And death has been abolished. Take me home. Take him home. Take the prince to the king. Take the son to the father. Take the pilgrim to his rest, for he deserves it. Come, 10,000 angels, and take this wounded man to the cradle of his father's arms, for now it's over. The suffering is no more. No more separation from the sovereign. The annual event always drew a crowd. And so the high priest once a year would take a lamb in his arms and solemnly climb the temple steps. And then he entered behind that great curtain, that veil that hung separating God from man. And the people waited on the outside as he passed through that curtain with this lamb. And he slew the lamb on the altar. And he prayed that God would be appeased one more time. And outside the people sighed because their sins had been rolled back for one more year. And that curtain hung there as a reminder of the distance between God and man. It was like man was isolated on a, across a great chasm that no one could breach. That man was isolated on an island, quarantined by his sin. And God could have left him that way, left it that way had he chosen. He could have smashed the sorry scheme of things entire, thrown in the towel, and begin again with a new generation on a new planet. He could have, but he didn't. And so he stood in the darkness of an eclipsed sun with a lamb. And he laid that lamb on the altar. Not some Jewish Jew's lamb, not some priest's lamb, not some shepherd's lamb, but the lamb of God. And, and angels hushed as that blood fell from that sacrifice on the golden altar. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then God looked back as for one last time at that curtain and then it happened. It cleaved from top to bottom. It was ripped from top to bottom and it hung there limply. And all of heaven's angels shouted, No more separation from the sovereign. No more sacrifice for sin. What do you do with your sin? That's a question that is echoed from Eden's innocency. What does man do with his sin? T.S.A. it has a monumental work called Cocktail Party. In this play, he has a character by the name of Celia talking to her psychiatrist, a man by the name of Riley. 
and she's talking about the fact that these things that she has done trouble her and bother her conscience. And so he responds like this, Well, tell me, what was your family's attitude toward the word sin? Oh, she said, I was taught not to believe it. That misbehavior was just bad form. And that anybody who was overly conscious with guilt was kind of kinky. But then she admits to her psychiatrist that she's having a problem resolving this feeling of failure in her life, whatever you call it. And she said, I, I have this, such a feeling of uncleanness, of incompleteness. I feel that I have failed someone outside of myself. Do you understand what I mean? And that I must atone. Atone, is that the word? And then she said, Sir, is it possible for you to treat a patient in that state of mind? Big question. What do we do with our sin? Now a British psychiatrist said, Modern man no longer is troubled by the matter of sin. He sees that category as a holdover from an ancient past. And he's no longer troubled by such a concept. You may not call it sin, but what do we do when that feeling of failure sweeps over us, when we break faith with the highest ideals in life? And what do we do when we realize, when we know in ourselves that we've done something that we should not have done? And when we know within ourselves we've not done what we should have done? Good question, most practical question could, be ever, could ever be asked on Easter Day. What do you do with your sin? And I've dealt with people and found that people handle their sin in a variety of ways. Most often by evading or ev avoiding it. We bury it under an avalanche of business, even religious activity. It's a way to deal with it, but it is a disastrous way. He was right who said, He who carries a secret sentences himself to a dungeon. And there are some who, who disavow responsibility for it, disclaim responsibility for it. And so when God stood between the tree that was forbidden and Adam and looked at them with that piercing look we've all known that always goes down to the deep of us. Adam pointed at Eve, and Eve pointed at the serpent, and they both said, it's not our fault. And then there's projection. And so we see in others a reflection of our own weakness, and the way we try to absolve our guilt is by condemning or judging others. It's exactly what happened when they brought that, when the scribes and the Pharisees brought that adulterous woman to Jesus. And after scratching in the sand a while, he got up and said, The problem is not just her problem, it's your problem as well. Now you go and deal with your sin before you condemn her because missions begins at home. And then some of us like to say, Well, everybody's doing it, it's no big deal. John Claypool tells about trying to minister to a man who's sitting one Saturday afternoon lying on his couch, uh, a uh, couch potato drinking beer. His wife was complaining about him, sitting there all afternoon drinking beer, and she was nagging and griping. And finally, when he'd had one beer too many and one complaint too many, he jumped up and stormed out of the house, got in the car, and started down the driveway, backing out. Didn't know his little boy was behind the car. Ran over him and killed him. And he never got over it. John Claypool said, What kind of a pastor would I have been if I had said to him, 
Look, I've read where two other fathers did the very same thing. Forget it. How do you forget it? How do you deal with this matter of sin? All of these are ways, but they're inadequate ways to deal with sin because they rely solely upon a human resource. Though your sin be as scarlet, it'll be white as snow. In order for that to happen, there's got to be some help from the outside. In order for our sin to be absolved and for us to get on with life again, somebody has to come from the outside to help us. I'm referring, of course, to the fact of the finished work of Christ at Calvary. And I say with Miriam, Myron Miriam, that a man must accept the atonement God provides in Christ Jesus or he must attempt to make some of his own. The only way to deal with the sin problem is to bring it to the great physician and turn to him. No more sacrifice. For the scripture says, not by the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered into the holy place once and for all, having obtained for us an eternal redemption. No more sacrifice. No more sting of death. It's recorded in the second chapter of the book of Acts. And these Pentecostals, these post-resurrection Christians, acting strange, they almost have a fanatical courage and joy as they spill out into the streets preaching and witnessing. And the only explanation that the Jews have is these men are drunk. And Peter gets up to disclaim that. He says, we're not drunk. He said, I mean, the bars are not even open. It's just 9 o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk as you suppose. Notice he said, not drunk as you suppose. He didn't deny being drunk. We're just not drunk as you suppose. We're not drunk on wine that comes in wine skins and bottles. We're drunk on the new wine of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're acting like this. And he gave explanation, he said, speaking of Jesus, for God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death, seeing that it no longer has power to hold him. What he's saying is that God has the last laugh, and the person who lasts, laugh, laughs, last, laughs best. And the father said, well, does she speak English? He said, no, but it doesn't matter. She laughs in English. <laughs> And Tom Hilton said, that's the universal language. He said, you don't need a UN interpreter to interpret laughter. He said, that's a language everybody understands. And so the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes says, it's time, there's a time to laugh. I submit to you, are you listening to me? It's time to laugh at death. It no longer holds terror for us. We don't have to deny that we're dying or try to camouflage it or paint it with a picture, paint it with a with colored face. We don't have to deny we're dying. The enemy of death has been defeated. We don't have to deny that we're getting older. Getting older means that we're one step closer to his victory. We don't have to cower before pain and illness. For the worst thing that could happen to us is that we die. So what? Did you hear that death? So what? So I die. That just means that I spend an eternity with Christ. An eternity that's more fun than this life, more full than this life, happier than this life, more secure than this life. For now there is no pain, no sorrow, no crying, no death. 
And I'm struck by the fact that that we talk about when somebody dies, we talk about him having passed away. And the Bible says that death has passed away. And Eugene O'Neill has a great play called Lazarus Laughs. I've referred to it often. It's a magnificent piece. It's the story of this man who had been brought back from the putrefying grave. He'd already begun to stink. And he's a strange character, this Lazarus brought back from the dead. Controversial, because all he does now is laugh. Even at death he laughs. And his home in Bethany is called the House of Laughter. Not a bad name for a church. What would you call this church? House of Tears? House of Long Sermons? <laughs> How about House of Laughter? It's time to laugh. Somebody said evangelical Christians have not only been washed in the blood, they've been starched as well. I mean, it was too stiff. There was a time when St. Francis of Assisi, the, the founder of the Franciscan order, and his men had to be asked to leave the church. They laughed too much. And the ancient Methodists, I was talking to some guys this morning, said, we're from the Methodists, and the ancient Methodists a long time ago went down to the dance halls to get their melodies, their music, to put their words to. So they went down to get the dance hall music, and they put their words to it and made hymns out of it. Why did they do that? Because that music was alive. Where do we ever get the idea that you're a better Christian if you're sad? And God likes you to feel morose and gloomy and it's time to laugh. And so Lazarus in Eugene O'Neill's play said, Come with me and let's laugh at death. Let's laugh at death. For God only laughs at Easter. W.D. Henson, prolific religious writer. Some of you may have his books. In Portland, Oregon, was told by a doctor that he had just a few weeks to live. We're all terminal after all, aren't we? And he went before his congregation and told them what his doctor had said. Then he said, I went out to where I live, 25 miles out near Hood River. I've been to the very spot. And he said, I stood there and I looked at snow-capped mountains and I looked at that river in which I rejoice. And later on that night I went out and watched God light his lamps in the sky. And I said, I may not see you many more times, old mountains, but I'll be alive when you're dust. And I may not see you many more times, river, but I'll be alive when you cease flowing into the sea. And I'll be alive, stars, when you fall out of your sockets by the great downpour of the universe. It's time to laugh at death. No more sting in death. No more suffering for the Savior. No more separation from the Sovereign. No more sacrifice for sin. No more sting of death. One last word, please. No more shrinking at the summons. And the women came back from the garden tomb, burst into the company of the disciples and said, Tid will paraphrase, get up off of your keister and go down to, wasn't well, really, it's not in the Bible. It's, uh, get, get, up, get up off of your, your duff and, 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 and go down to Galilee for the Lord says He goes before you there. I love it. Get up from here and head off down to Galilee. And the Lord said, He'd meet you there. Ray Stedman 
say he grew up in Illinois and just a kid in, in Illinois and his daddy was going to move to Montana. He said they had all these boxes, all their stuff packed up and stacked to the walls and, and he was going to spend his last night in his little house in Illinois and he said he remembered getting down on his knees and, and he said, well, God, I guess it's goodbye because we're going to Montana. And, and, and Ray Stedman said, I have learned as I have lived over these years that wherever my Montanas take me, he always precedes me there. Get up and go down to Galilee, and he'll meet you there. And Catherine Booth, the wife of the father of the Salvation Army, did not share his call at first, not until she said, I had this encounter with Christ. And she said, he didn't chide me, and he didn't scold me. He just lifted his hands, and I saw the nail prints. And he said to me, this is your way, and there is no other. And she said, I fell at his feet and said, so be it, Lord. Will you be with me? And he said, to the end of the way. And he lifts up his hands today. Does the risen Christ and we see the print. And He doesn't chide us, and He doesn't scold us. He just says, Get up and go. Go into your neighborhood and make disciples. Go next door to where that man is tortured and taunted and make disciples. Get up from here and go into this community and make disciples, and get up off of your complacency, and go into this world, and make disciples, and we cry, so be it. Will you go with me? And he says, to the end of the way. And that takes all the fear out of the summons. And we've come this morning to this place to celebrate the things that are no more. He doesn't suffer anymore. There are no veils. Every man a priest unto God. No more veils. No more separation. No more sacrifice. For there was one supreme sacrifice. No more sting and death. No more shrinking. So be it, if you go with me. Let's pray. Father, now for these, this moment of invitation and this call of God, I pray your power and will and purpose and grace to be accomplished. And may the Holy Spirit move upon us now and come down among us to make every decision we make a decision that pleases Thee. For I ask in Christ's name. Look, please, there are three invitations. I invite you this morning to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. There's something, I said in that early service, there's something special about someone who's saved on Easter Sunday. It's something you never forget. I got saved and I got baptized on Easter Sunday. We see for ourselves an illustration of the resurrection. 
Have you ever... I'm not asking you if you've ever joined a church or if you've ever been baptized. Have you ever repented of your sin and placed your faith in the finished work of Christ and trusted for life and death upon Him? Would you do that today? Now, I know it's hard to get out of your seat, and that makes it the people by you. They are praying for you. When we stand in a moment, they'll be praying that you'll come, and all you've got to do is just touch them, and they'll let you by. We'll clear this building out if you'll come. I invite you this morning to come and place your life in this church. Let's celebrate together the things that are no more every Sunday we meet. And maybe there's some of you today who for a long, long time have been aware that, that you've not been living like God wants you to live and you just want to come say, on this day, I want to begin again. I want to repent. I want to, I want to get right with God. I want to forsake my life my, of sin. Come. We're going to sing just a stanza or two. So you'll want to come on the first word. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.